Today we begin our season of Advent. Advent means coming. And each week during Advent leading up to Christmas, we celebrate different aspects of God's blessing that he brings into our lives because of his coming. Uh, his first coming and his anticipated second coming. This Sunday, the first Sunday, as you heard, we're talking about hope. So let us pray towards that end. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, rejoice in the hope that you extend to us. Uh, we thank you for the hope that's embedded in your word. Uh, but Lord, even more, the hope that is embedded in a risen Savior. And to that end, Lord, we pray that you would remind us of uh, Christ, of your Son, of this great King that we owe our allegiance to. We might place our hope and trust in him this day as we consider your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So are you a person of hope? Are you filled with hope? Do you live in the optimism that hope affords you? You know, uh, upon the first read of a New Testament, if you've ever just read the Gospels and letters, Paul and Peter and others, John, you will find that the entire New Testament is just brimming with an anchored, optimistic hope that shapes every aspect of the lives who wrote, uh, wrote the books. Um, you hear it in Paul's writings and John's. You heard it this morning in Peter's. Uh, he wrote, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Where does that hope come from? What is the source of this optimistic hope that the New Testament announces? I'd like to spend this morning kind of teasing that out a bit. Uh, this hope that is ours from the vantage point of the New Testament writers uh, to put Psalms, the whole book, in perspective, but in particular our psalm today, Psalm 110, into perspective, into context for us. When the disciples gathered together, Jesus appeared to them, resurrected Jesus, Jesus alive after the crucifixion. He appeared to them and he says this to them. He says, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms. And in previous sermons, I, I've mentioned that the Hebrew Bible, that which we call the Old Testament in our Christian Bible, it had a different arrangement. Our Old Testament is arranged by genres. First, you basically have history books, and then you move on to books of wisdom and poetry, and then we finish off with prophecy. 
And that organization, it's helpful. It, it helps us to think about the genres, how to take book, you know, the context as we read each of them. It has its advantages. But when the Hebrew Bible, uh, when it was organized, the organization that Jesus would have been familiar with, it, it was different. It was organized in a different manner. As a Hebrew Bible canon came together after Israel returned from uh, Babylon during their exile, leading up to the coming of Christ, the, the books of the Hebrew Bible, well, they were also put into three main groups. Uh, the first was called the Torah, and that held the covenants, the history of the God establishing a covenant uh, with his people books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, you know, his people, Adam, covenant with Adam, covenant with Noah, and Abraham leading up uh, eventually to the culmination of those covenants and the law of Moses. And you move on to the second section, uh, the prophets, called the Nevi'im. And then you go on to the third section, and that was called the Kedavim, uh, or writings. And as you can see, that started out with the Psalms. In rabbinical uh, commentary, the Hebrew Bible is referred to as the Tanakh, or Tanakh, which is an acronym from those three words, the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Kedavim. So, when the resurrected Jesus refers to the Psalms in his statement to the disciples, he, he probably wasn't referring just to the Psalms, but probably to that whole third section of the Hebrew Bible, the Ketuvim. And you, as you look at those three sections, you might think, well, you know, it's just a little bit of a switch. You know, the you know, Christian, uh, those who decide the canon for uh, the Christian Bible, they just moved uh, the prophets after the poetry. Uh, they just kind of switch it around. But if you actually look at it a little more closely, you realize, well, wait a second. There, it's not as clear cut like that, right? If, if you look at the prophetical section, it begins with three or four books of history uh, that we typically wouldn't you know, identify as, as prophetical, but prophets are attributed to writing them, but it still is kind of historical. And particularly when you look at the Kedavim, the, the writings, you uh, begin to see a, a lot of difference. Yes, you see Psalms starting it off in Proverbs and other books of poetry, but you also see Lamentations written by Jeremiah, which we have in the prophetical section in the Christian Bible. And you see uh, uh, Daniel, which is clearly a book of prophecy or history, whichever, uh, doesn't seem to be just poetry, that's for sure. Uh, and the, that whole section, uh, the writings, the Kedavim, it ends with a, a number of historical books, uh, ending in particular uh, with Chronicles, which is a book that focuses on the divinic kingship and lineage, um, history behind that. So you see, in the first section of the Hebrew Bible, the Torah, it's all about covenant and establishing, establishing a relationship between God and his people. The second section, it's, it's the prophets. And when you think a prophet, 
the first thing that should come to mind isn't just a, you know future uh, hope and things that are going to happen in the future. The prophets were judgment. They were sent because Israel was not being faithful to God's covenants. And, and so that whole second, second section is really all about the broken covenant of God's people breaking the covenant with the Lord. Well, then what's this third section about? What do you expect it to be about? It's going to be about covenant renewal. It's going to be about this heightened expectation that God would fulfill his covenant promises to his people through the coming of the Messiah. And again, in particular, from a king from the line of David. So you start off this whole section with the book of Psalms. And who wrote most of the Psalms? At least many of them. Well, it's King David. And, and it's all about uh, David's lineage and, and how they worship the Lord and the, the, this idealized expectation in the last book of Psalms, book five, about this, this coming kingdom where there's praise and, and defeat of God's uh, enemies. Uh, but it's all kind of couched around David. And you look right in the middle of the Kedavim, you find Ruth. And what's Ruth? Well, that's actually just this wonderful story that ends with the lineage leading up to David. And then you finish uh, the writings with this, again, historical book that encompasses all of the history of God's people, particularly focusing on issues of covenant and covenant renewal and, uh, and like a laser beam, studying David from actually a very positive viewpoint compared to the kings uh, and, and Samuel that starts off the prophets and the judgment against God's people. And, and you might also notice, uh, you, you know this from our previous sermons, that, that the Psalms were very musical. Uh, they have music notations through them. And, and why? Well, that's because the Psalms were used liturgically in worship, in the first and second temple worship. Uh, and, and what was that worship all about? What's our worship all about? It's always coming before the Lord and renewing our covenant vows of love and loyalty to him, of telling him how much we love him, how much we honor him, how much we respect him, and establishing our relationship with him again. But what you might not know is that actually the, it's not just Psalms, but the, the first eight books of the writings had what were called cant or are called cantillations or musical notations written in them in the Masoretic text, that the ancient Hebrew text as well, because all of these, uh, all of those in that section were used at, liturgically in post-exilic Jerusalem. They were used for worship. They were all used for renewing uh, the, the covenant uh, with their God. The last five, Mark, you can see kind of uh, in the two red lines up there, uh, the, those, the, they were called um, uh, the Megalo uh, from Song of Songs um, down to Ecclesiastes. Uh, they were called the Little Scrolls because they were used 
specifically in order during feasts and celebrations according to the, the Jewish calendar. Uh, and so, so not only did the book of Psalms act as a liturgical guide for worship and covenant renewal, but this whole third section of the Hebrew Bible, the Ketuvim, the writings did this as well, ending with and weave throughout this laser beam focus, theological reflection about the coming Messiah from the line of David, this king. So do you get like how this, the, the, the uh, Jews at that time period were just, just swimming with this expectation because their scriptures were focused that way. The, the, the canon, the Tanakh, uh, the Hebrew Bible had a story to tell in its arrangement from covenant promise given in the Torah to covenant broken in the section of prophet Nevim to the covenant promises and process of being renewed but not yet fulfilled in the Ketuvim. And this expectation, it was just for hundreds of years ripening and dripping and longing with this insatiable appetite to be fulfilled. The Ketuvim, it set the table anticipating the complete and full renewal of God's covenant relationship with his people by means of this Messiah, this king from the line of David. And so there Jesus is, resurrected, speaking to his disciples, saying, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Jesus used the Psalms as representative of the Ketuvim, because the book of Psalms captured this future hope and expectation. And the whole New Testament just used the Psalms over and over and over. 79 times at least they are quoted in the New Testament Psalms. Psalms were quoted that many times. Hundreds more times they were alluded to in, in kind of references and, and, and wording that drew you back if you knew the Psalms, which of course you did because you were singing them all the time in that time period. Jesus himself quoted the Psalms more than any other book of the Old Testament. And out of all the Psalms, which Psalm is quoted and referred to the most in the New Testament? Well, Psalm 110. It's the one we're looking at today. It was, it's mentioned over 25 times and a number more times. Again, it's alluded to. So why, what was it about this psalm that captured the whole, whole heart of the Tanakh, the whole heart of the Ketuvim? Well, why did the New Testament writers land on this psalm to drive home the proclamation of good news in which they were entrusted. Well, let's take a look at it. David starts out in verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord. 
And if you look at it carefully, you'll see that the Lord, the first Lord's capitalized and the second Lord is a capital L, but lowercase after that. Uh, that's because the first Lord is referring to Yahweh, uh, God. The second Lord is referring to somebody who has authority. And in this case, in this context, because this is a psalm written by David, which says a psalm of David, and I really think David wrote those psalms. I preached about that in an, a, another sermon you can go back to, that David actually is the author of the psalms that are attributed to him. So when it says, my Lord, if David wrote the psalm, he's saying that that's, you know, it's my, this is David's Lord. The authority that's being spoken of here is authority over David. And he's identified uh, later uh, in, this, in the psalm, uh, this, this Lord, he's identified as a king who carries a scepter and, a, and he rules and he defeats other kings in verses two and five. David, without hesitation, submits himself in this prophetic vision, in this psalm, he submits himself to this king uh, that, that he sees. This isn't just going to be a son of David. You know, our, our kids don't usually, you know, we, we don't usually bow down to our kids or our grandkids. They always look up to us, right? Uh, that's not what it's like here. It's, it's, not, it's not just a son of David who follows in his footsteps or someone who's just lie in the likeness or lineage of David, David sees one who will come along who will be far superior than himself. And this is the, one of the ways that Jesus uses this psalm uh, in, in the New Testament or in the Gospels. Uh, it's, this is mentioned three different times. Here in the Gospel of Mark, uh, Jesus discussing the expected Messiah. What's this Messiah going to be like? And he points out this very, this very teaching point in, from Psalm 110. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, Why do the teachers of the law say that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord, Jesus says. So how then can he be his son? You see Jesus' point, he's saying, in other words, David, the Old Testament king who was idealized, he was the idealized king, most blessed by God, utilized for the paradigm of this future Messiah in the Kedavim, is, he's, is, he's given a prophetic vision from the Lord of a future king who will be superior to himself. So if David spoke of this coming king, and David gave his allegiance to this coming king and subjected himself to this king. And this king has arrived. Well, we better pay attention, shouldn't we? Jesus says, speaking of, well, himself. Why did David say 
that this king would be superior to himself. Well, first, it, it, he's superior because of a, his rule would be superior, or his position of the rule would be superior to David. You don't really find in the New Testament any clear statement that David was sitting at the right hand of Yahweh. Other kings in the ancient Near East, they actually are kind of in their, you know, carvings and things are, are depicted sitting next to, uh, to their pagan gods. And, and there is a sense that David shared the throne of God ruling over here on earth, but it's not really stated that way. It, it, David does say uh, that the Lord's right hand helped me or assisted me, uh, but never really given the positional description of authority depicted by that statement, sit at my right hand. Where is that? You know, sitting at the right hand. Well, we're going to find out in a minute when we take a look at the New Testament authors, there's a very specific place. It, it wasn't just, you know, in Jerusalem, uh, but it, it was actually in heaven itself. So just the, the, the physical location position right hand uh, was important to understand what the New Testament thought of this psalm. But secondly, it, it was also, when you hear the language of right hand, you always need to think power. It's just power. It's the position that exercises the same power as the one who's on the throne. In some way, this Lord will exercise the same power as the Lord. And this power, from David's perspective, is escalated from his own power. The power that Yahweh possessed would be the power that this king would possess and equally exercise. So you have the location, you have the power, and then you have the extent. Uh, it, this third reality is his rule, it wouldn't just be local like David's was, but his rule would extend far beyond Jerusalem and Judah. According to verses 5 and 6, he would execute judgment among the nations. He'd shatter chiefs over the earth on the, uh, over the, earth on the day of wrath. It would extend worldwide, this kingdom uh, and this king's reign. Well, then years passed and Jesus was born and he died and he was resurrected. And the New Testament writers could not wait to tell this reality in a public declaration that the fulfillment of the hope extended in the Tanakh after they had met this resurrect, resurrected Jesus, that hope, that expectation was now fulfilled. Why? Why were they so certain that Psalm 110 was fulfilled? Well, when Peter 
was first speaking publicly on the day of Pentecost, what does he share about Christ when he speaks about Jesus? He shares two Psalms. He shares Psalm 16, and he shares from Psalm 110 when he's speaking about Jesus. And here's how it ends. Here's how it climaxes. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. What a great message. There's a couple of things you, could, uh, you probably noticed about Peter's use of Psalm 110, because he purposely compares David to Jesus. First, he says, David died and was buried and is in his tomb to this day. We love David. David was a fabulous king, but there he is in his tomb. But then what does he say about Jesus? He goes on to say, God has raised Jesus to life. And we were witnesses of it. You see, it's the resurrection. It's the resurrection that creates an escalated reality about the kingship of Christ compared to David. He goes on, he says, uh, he says of Jesus, Jesus is exalted to the right hand of God. And what's he do? He compares that against David. He says, David did not ascend into heaven. Right? So here he's he's referencing the ascension. That he was raised to life. And that with their very own eyes, they saw him go up into heaven in a cloud. Where did he go? They know. To the right hand of of God the Father Almighty. Again, Peter asserts the authority and superiority over David. Well, it shouldn't surprise you when you turn to Paul then. He does the same thing. Paul also emphasizes the resurrection and ascension in conjunction with Psalm 110 in Ephesians. He says... That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. 
And God placed all things under his feet, appointing him to be head over the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. What does he refer to when he speaks of Psalm 110? It's the resurrection and it's the ascension. And in the great chapter on the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For he has put everything under his feet. Again, making reference to the resurrection in relationship to Psalm 110. The resurrection was the proof to the disciples that this Messiah had come, that power was seen like any other power in all of history because they witnessed a man hanging on the cross who had come back to life. David uh, goes on, though, and he, he talks about another uh, aspect of the expected role of this king. David says in verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And that's a whole sermon waiting for another day. Uh, but in passing, I do, you may or may not know who Melchizedek was. He was a king uh, in, that interacted with Abraham. Uh, Abraham and his, uh, there were about nine other kings who were in a skirmish. And Abraham's nephew Lot was caught up in it. Abraham rescued Lot from that situation. And as he is coming back, he runs into this king from, seems like, out of nowhere. Uh, his name's Melchizedek. And a couple of things about Melchizedek that are, of, of course, great interest to the New Testament authors and should be to you as well. That Melchizedek, it's kind of two words, Melik and Zedek, and those two words together basically mean king of righteousness. And we're also told of the town that he was king over, uh, it was uh, Salem, which should sound familiar to you because it's shalom, which means peace. So he was king of peace. He was king of righteousness and he was king of peace. And, uh, and then he's described as uh, a priest of God most high. Uh, Fascinating. And so, so David, knowing Genesis, knowing this person of Melchizedek, receives this vision that this future king would in some way uh, be like Melchizedek. And what is particularly of interest there is that if you think about the Mosaic Covenant, you know that the, the role of priest and the role of king, they were pretty much separated. Uh, kings weren't supposed to be priests. 
And, it, and da for David, it would have been impossible for any of his uh, lineage. It seems like it would be impossible for this to happen. Uh, in fact, you know, Saul was one of the reasons he was rejected was because he performed uh, Levitical duties or uh, things that only priests should have done. That's why Saul was rejected as king. And David knows better that this, this just can't be. So if this future king is going to come to power and rule, he had to do so under some new covenant, some new uh, reality, a relationship uh, between God and his people in which he was given the right and authority to serve as both king and priest as Melchizedek had. And not only was the kingship of the Messiah described as more superior than David's, but the role of this priest, according to David in Psalm 110, 4, is that this priest would serve forever. The Levitical priests, they would serve for a while, somebody would replace them, or they die, and there'd be somebody else. And of course, they were carrying all of their own sin and... They, it was just this temporary reality. But in some means or manner, this king, this future Davidic king, whose kingdom in other prophecies is described as everlasting, so too the Melchizedek priest that David sees is an everlasting priesthood. And that's where the book of Hebrews picks up. Hebrews drives home Psalm 110. The whole book of Hebrews really is oriented around Psalm 10. It starts out in chapter 1-3. He refers uh, to Psalm 10. The writer says, uh, he, well, he actually refers to it again in conjunction to the resurrection and the ascension. He says, after making purification for sins. That's the role of a priest. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. We know he's superior to David, and we're about to hear he's superior to the priesthood, Hebrews starts out saying he's way superior to the angels. And, and, and what does he refer to? Well, the sitting down at the right hand of God. Again, that's a reference to the resurrection and the ascension. And then chapter 7 drives all of this home. If you have a chance to read it, please do at some point. It says, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there be for another priesthood to arise after the order of Melchizedek? This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, not based on a legal requirement concerning the tribe of Levi, in other words, being part of the tribe of Levi. But listen... But by the power of an indestructible life, for it is written, 
For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This has made Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So what do you hear again? He's become a high priest forever because of his indestructible life, his resurrection and his ascension and his placement to the right hand of God the Father Almighty where he makes intercession for you with his own blood so that you would be perfected and he's there eternally serving on your behalf. Why is the New Testament brimming with hope? Well, because the apostles witnessed with their very own eyes. They saw Jesus do many miraculous things. They heard from heaven a voice say, this is my son. And they saw that man die on a cross and stand before them and say, listen, everything in the Old Testament has been fulfilled because of me. It's me. I'm that Messiah. I am that king. Everything in the Torah, everything in the prophets, everything in the Catechism. And so later Peter says in Acts 4, we cannot help but speak what we have heard. And now 2,000 years have passed. And this king is now not just recognized in Jerusalem. He's recognized in Indonesia, in Kazakhstan. He's recognized in Chile. He's recognized in China. He's recognized in the United States. He's recognized in this sanctuary. Nations and tribes are rejoicing at the name of Jesus. We're gathering together, renewing our vows of love and loyalty to this resurrected Christ. And we got to be honest, it's not everything it's cracked up to be yet, right? You, there's tangible evil. There's a world in chaos. And there's a need of a second coming. And men and women, he's coming. He is returning. And you know why you can be assured of that? I mean, everything that you read in 1 Peter in our call to worship, we've been given a new hope through the living, you know, the resurrection, everything we read. Everything Peter wrote after that was all about suffering. <laughs> how hard life is. How uh, the world is still in the hands of powers and principalities that are not of God. 
But Peter speaks of hope. You know why? Because of the resurrection. Because he saw it, he knew it would be true. And whether one day or a thousand, they're all the same in the Lord's eyes, he will return. The scoffers scoff, but he will come again. That is the promise. That is the hope. That is why the New Testament is brimming with optimism. It's the hope that you need to live in today. It's the hope that is extended to you because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the new covenant that he has established with his blood that we're going to celebrate together in a moment uh, through this act of worship and liturgy before us. Live in that hope. Rejoice in that hope. In your suffering, do not lose hope because the king is coming. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us when we lose hope, uh, when we get so caught up in thinking that nothing's going to change, that all's lost, that there is no one to rescue. Oh Lord, by your spirit, resurrect that hope in our lives to trust you as Peter trusted you because he saw it and he knew it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.